open up to 1 Kings chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10 today. Verses 1 through 10. And primarily, that's where we're going to be. It's verses 1 through 10. We're looking at all of chapter 11 uh, and the fall of Solomon. But primarily, um, the meat of the chapter that really gives us everything that we need to think about in regard to what's going on with Solomon is in the first 10 verses. So we're going to read the first 10 verses and then mostly look at that. So if you will stand with me uh, as we read uh, at the end, at the end, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And you'll say, thanks be to God. And of course, you're thanking the Lord that he's given us his word. But also uh, let it be for you as you say, thanks, uh, an impetus within your heart, a catalyst within your heart to say the things that I see in the text this morning. Lord, the things that you show me, I want to obey. I want to say yes to I want to change my life. So starting chapter 11, verse one. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were his princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old... His wives turned away his heart after the other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his David, his father. For Solomon went after the Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after the Milcon, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as as his father David had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain of the east Jerusalem. And he did um, for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifices to their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. He had and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after the other gods, but did not keep what the Lord commanded. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love and your mercy. We thank you for difficult texts like this, even though they're difficult to talk about. um, You want us to know every word that's in your text. You want us to see and understand everything that's there. And so I pray, Lord, that this morning, even though this is a difficult text, that you would um, you would help us by the power of the Holy Spirit to think deeply about what it is that your word's saying to us, Christians, uh, some 3,000 years after these events. Just like Solomon's heart was the issue, our hearts can be the issue. And you want us to really survey our hearts. And so, Lord, pray. I pray this morning that you would be so kind to send your spirit, not only to this room to teach us, but into our hearts individually as we deal with a difficult passage on um, men and really men and women in this room that might have hearts that are wayward. I pray that you help me speak this morning with um, pastoral care and gentleness, but also, Lord, uh, with the proper amount of conviction so that we can all, because of your word, feel the proper understanding of what it means to be um, entrenched in sin and how serious it is. 
We need a special measure of your grace this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you've been with us, uh, you know that we've been studying through the book of 1 Kings. Uh, but I'll give a quick little recap of what's going on. Uh, the book of 1 Kings kind of naturally is a middle point of a larger set of texts, which is First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. And really, um, all of that is about the monarchy of Israel or how they actually get a king. They, they had the Lord God their king, um, and that wasn't enough. I keep asking my children over and over as we, we're reading through Second Samuel, and, I, and I, uh, I say, who was the first king of Israel? And little Tristan always goes, God. And I'm like, well, yes, that's right. But who is the first human king is kind of what I'm asking. But he's got it right. And it, truly, that's exactly if Israel would have just believed that and understood that, that God was their king, then they wouldn't have asked for a human king. But they didn't. And so first and second Samuel and first and second Kings are kind of the story of the monarchy of Israel. And if first Samuel is the building, second Samuel is the arriving finally of, of a monarchy. Well, first Kings is the decline of the monarchy and how it eventually is going to fall. And second Kings is just the fall of it. And so, uh, as we were uh, studying through, we saw in the beginning of this book, first Kings, that David was the king, uh, but he dies in the very beginning and Solomon becomes king and he sets up his monarchy. He sets up his kingdom as we saw in the first few chapters. And then chapters five through nine, which we looked at last week, he builds the temple. And I made the comment at the very kind of end of the sermon, as we were looking at the middle part of chapter nine, chapter nine verses kind of one through nine, I said, all right, this is the pinnacle of the monarchy of Israel. This is the best that it gets. There is no more heyday. There is no more greatness. At this point, they had just built the temple. There's one king. They're united. All 12 tribes are united under one king. This is the best it's going to be because right now, Solomon, in some ways, still loves the Lord. But at, at next week, that's it. That's, this is it. <laughs> After this, it's just, it's just downhill, downhill, downhill. And so that's where we are finding ourselves. Is we, we, last week, we were at the best place of anything that could happen. And now it's all downhill. So uh, we've looked at um, chapter 5 through 9, which kind of talked about the building of, of the temple. And we're not going to look too much at 10, but 10 is a, is a display of the wisdom of Solomon. The queen of Sheba comes and she sees how uh, amazing Solomon is and how wise he is, etc. And that's really talking about her visit and, and the great wealth that he has. And when you get to 11, um, 11 begins the downfall of Solomon, really the downfall of the kingdom. And so because of that, uh, we're looking at a, a, a fallen, a fallen uh, believer of God. Uh, so that makes this sermon in itself heavy and serious. And so some sermons are that. Some sermons are heavy and serious. And because the chapters that God has sovereignly brought us to study this particular morning, it makes this sermon um, heavy and serious and will begin with law. Now, there will be gospel and there's an important distinction as the as the pastor to always make sure that I make a distinction between law and gospel and never, ever make you think that they're the same. If I just give you a bunch of law and don't ever give you the gospel, then you think in order to know God and love God and be loved by God and to be saved by God, I got to follow the law. And that's not, that's not, that's not the good news, right? You, there is the law, which helps you see that you can't. And then there's the gospel. And so, but today, because of the nature of the way the text is written, there will be more law uh, than maybe normal, but uh, it's going to make the sermon itself serious minded. But we see here, as we read, the fall of Solomon. And we need to make sure we understand it's the idolatry of Solomon's heart 
that causes the fall. It's not really all of his wives. Sure, they were idolaters and he followed after their gods, but it was his idolatrous heart that caused his fall. Uh, A few weeks back when David preached, he quoted at the end of a sermon as an application, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, which is where Jesus uh, comes to the Ephesian church after it had been planted by Paul. And he reads, and Jesus reads to them or tells them, not reads to them, but tells them uh, some things that they need to work on. And I want to read it for us because I think it's a good opening for us. So Jesus is speaking to the church at Ephesus after they've been a church for some 30 years. And he says that this to them, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this. Christ speaking to the church at Ephesus. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks upon the seven golden lampstands. And he tells the church, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. So this is good. The church at Ephesus is able to distinguish between right teaching and wrong wrong teaching and how they don't like evil teaching, how they don't think this is good. So they are sound theologically. They've been around for a while. They can distinguish between wrong and right. And they know these things. This is all good. But here's what he says. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake and you have not grown weary. So they're enduring and persevering in the faith. But after being a church for 30 years, I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. So you were deeply in love with Christ building your theology and serving him well and loving people well. And now after 30 years, you're still making sure that you're not participating in evil. But now after being a Christian for a long time or a church for a long time, that first love, that amazing, I'm captivated with Christ. My heart's just moved by Jesus love has gone. And now for you being a Christian is making sure that you're following the rules and kicking out the, the, uh, the evil ones and you are enduring, but you're not still having this This amazing, deep love for Jesus that you had when you first got started. And he says, remember, therefore, where you have fallen. And he says, repent and do the works you did at first. It's interesting. Do the works you did at first. And so he commands them to repent for not loving Christ like they used to. And then he says, if not, I will come to you and therefore remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And so there's there's a consequence of not Loving Christ like you did whenever you first became a Christian, Ephesian church. Now, I read that because the warning given to the Ephesian church by Jesus would have served Solomon well. It would have served Solomon well because we we know that Solomon is going to fall here. And I would say further, if it serves Solomon well, it means it serves all of us well. So today as we study the text and we learn from Solomon's life, keep Revelation chapter 2, the fact that they had abandoned their first love, keep that as the backdrop in your mind, serving to focus all of our hearts and minds on Christ. Perhaps for some of us who might have been Christians for a long time and we are more sound and theological than we were 30 years ago. And we, we can serve the Lord faithfully and we can endure and we're pointing out the wrong things, but there's just something about our heart that's grown cold. There's something about our consciences that have been seared where we don't have the, the same first love for Christ that we had 
where we were wide-eyed and just amazed by the good news of Jesus anymore. And so perhaps uh, the Lord would be kind to give us that first love into our hearts again. So long before you see a chapel being built to the Ashtoreth and the Chemeth, or whatever they're called in Solomon's life, uh, the king's heart, long before he's building chapels for his wives to have pagan worship, long before those things are being built, years and years before he had done that, his heart took a turn. And after his heart took a turn, perpetually, perpetually compromise after compromise after compromise, then he started doing outright obvious things like building chapels for pagans. Meaning, long before you and I are partaking in some deep, obvious, horrific sin, our heart may have taken a turn and we have lost our first love. And so my goal this morning, and I think the goal of the text this morning, is to address our hearts more than anything before they take any kind of sudden bad turn because this turning that can happen, it can be very subtle and it can be very long and very gradual. And so I want to show you cautions beforehand before you get down the road and there's a turn in your heart because uh, it's dangerous business whenever your heart's been turned for a long period of time. And we could be like the Ephesian church where we've just lost our first love, but it could be worse that we're become apostates. And so... Uh, I want us to be cautious as we look at this text. And I want us to not just uh, think about the people that we wish were here, that we I really wish that they could hear this. But instead, since you're here and I'm here, let's just think about our own hearts this morning. As much as strong as we think we are, as theologically sound as we are, as much as we think that we are head over heels in love with Jesus, and maybe we are, let's stop and just consider our own hearts and that we're not bowing down to 21st century equivalents to Chemosh and Milken and the Ashtoreth like Solomon. It takes years to do this. It takes years. As Dale Davis says, um, once our heart turns, it's the result of a creeping pace of accumulated compromises, the fruit of a conscience that's become desensitized by repeated permissiveness. So this is what sin does. I'm going to read it again. It's a result of creeping pace of accumulated compromises, small compromise, small compromise, small compromise. And then all of a sudden it's the fruit of a conscience that's become desensitized by repeated permissiveness. I'll permit that in my life. It's no big deal. I'll permit that. And all of a sudden we might be like Solomon. And so what I want us to do, I'm not going to have any notes on the screen. I just have the title. You're going to put up the title and that's it. I just want you to listen with me. So uh, type airs, no writing, no writing. If you have to, I will send you this later if you need it. All right. Just, just listen with me. But the big title is this noticing spiritual compromises and fighting against spiritual downfalls, noticing spiritual compromises in your own heart. Where am I compromising? Where am I spiritually compromising? And then learning to fight against the spiritual downfall that could be happening to any of us. As I said, it's a very serious, somber text this morning, but this is where the Lord would have us. This is where the Lord would have us as we study through first Kings. So look at verse one, look at verse one. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, which who was his wife, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. And so the first thing I want us to think about when it comes to spiritual compromises is this. Some spiritual compromises 
can just be obviously predictable. They can just be obviously predictable. That's what verse 1 shows us. Solomon loved many foreign women. The, the spiritual compromise is quite predictable. It begins by telling us what was the common open practice of Solomon. That he had many wives and he loved them. Common open practices of sin are easily and predictably going to lead us into sin. This is plain on its face obvious that this is going to be bad for Solomon. And if we have some open, common, easily uh, noticeable, predictable sins in our life, it's going to go bad for us. For Solomon, it was the love of many foreign women. What is it for us this morning? What is it individually for you in your heart this moment? It's, it's not Solomon, likely, but it's something. What is it for you? Do you have predictable, open, common, easily noticeable common practices of sin and compromise in your life. If you do, if it's just such become a pattern that it's, it's not even like, you know, difficult to see, then kill it now. You need to stop. Why, why would we let our hearts uh, fall into a compromise? Tony Marita says this, says it this way. You cannot let sin go unchecked and think everything will be fine. You must deal with it head on immediately and aggressively. The Puritans used to talk about sin this way. Even and, and so, you might be thinking, "Well, I'm not, you know, doing these big, huge, noticeable, terrible, wide-open, obvious sins." But there might be these small, as Jerry Bridges calls, respectable sins. You know, uh, you should read that book. It's very convicting. It's it's the the sins that you know it's okay for me to do because you know. Everybody kind of tells white lies or whatever. Uh, so we have these little respectable sins. And the Puritans talk about not the big ones, but even the little small sins that we don't think are a big deal. They say it this way. The Puritans used to compare these small little sins with small little baby venomous snakes. They're small, so they might not seem like a big deal, but they're still deadly. They're venomous snakes. And so if you let them live rather than kill them, they will grow and they'll become huge serpents. And so some spiritual compromises just can be obviously predictable. They're happening and they're open and we shouldn't let them happen in our life. The next thing that we can see is in verses one through three. So that the first thing is some spiritual compromises are just predictable. The next one is this. Some spiritual compromises are just direct disobedience from scripture. Look at verse one through three. So we see this list and it says we had all this list of Moabite, Ammonite, women, etc., And it says from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel. And there's a little quote mark here. You shall not enter into marriage with them. Neither, neither shall they be with you for surely they will turn your heart, turn away your heart after their gods. Now this is a restatement of what was given to them in Deuteronomy seven. So um, what they were told is whenever they were entering into the promised land, God said, I have clear expectations for all of you, not just for the king, but for all of you, Israel, when you enter into the promised land, there's going to be tons and tons of nations uh, that are not Israelite. And this is what, this is what I to- he told them. So I'm, I just quoted, but let me read Deuteronomy 7, verse 1 through 5-ish to you, 4-ish. It says this, When the Lord your God brings you into the promised land that you're entering, take possession of it and clear away all the nations before you. That means destroy them all. The Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Pezrites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord gives you over... 
and the Lord gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. Now, we read this in the Old Testament sense and we're like, wow, this is amazing. But just read this in a, in a New Testament slant and just think the Lord says that when you become a Christian, if there's sins in your life, you must not let them, the little poisonous snakes, be still in your mind. You must complete them or, or put them to complete destruction. Every sin in your life must have complete destruction given to it. You shall make no covenant. So back to the Old Testament, dealing with the people. You shall make no covenant with these people and show mercy. So don't just let them live beside you and say, well, I'm not going to put you to complete destruction because you seem like an okay person. So I'm just going to let you live here beside me. Let's just not have war. He says, don't do that. Do not do that. You shall not make no covenant with them, show no mercy. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would, here it is, turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. This is exactly what's happening to Solomon. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will destroy you quickly. And so this um, commandment that had been given to Solomon... He was breaking. So when I say some spiritual compromises are just direct disobedience, Solomon could not plead ignorance here. It was like, oh, I didn't know about that. It had been given in Deuteronomy and he was clearly not supposed to intermarry. Even more obvious, just to make it more obvious, um, he broke the 10th commandment. We we see here that he has 700 wives and so he's marrying all kinds of people. He's, He's breaking the 10th commandment of adultery and obviously maybe the worst the first commandment of having other gods before him. There's no uh, pleading like, I don't know the ignorance here of Solomon. Solomon was an obvious direct disobedience to the commandments of God. Don't take foreign women. Don't commit adultery. Don't have other gods before me. These are the direct disobediences to him. There's clear commandments and clear willing to break them. Now, these are his. We have... Commandments as well that are given to us. So take the step back and say, if those are Solomon's, then let's say, what are ours? What are my direct, obvious disobedience of commandments that I am committing? What are ours? It's one thing for us to know the word of God, to know the commandments of the God um, and to have it down uh, that we, we have it here. But it's also another thing to actually live by it. God doesn't want us to just know his commandments. He wants us to obey his commandments. And the word of God is filled with them for we, for us Christians, not just the specific laws to give into Israel, like don't get tattoos and don't grow beards and don't eat pig. Like that's them, right? There's also New Testament clear commandments for us as well. And we as Christians are to obey those things. We are to follow those things and, and want to obey, not because they give us a right standing with God, but because we have a right standing with God and we want to live our lives as worship for him. And so we must fight to not compromise when it comes to obeying the commandments of God and not have a downfall. So the second thing that we see is this, that some spiritual compromises as first are predictable. The second one are some are just direct disobedience and we must fight against them. The next thing that we see is some spiritual compromises also stem from what's ultimately a heart problem. Ultimately a heart problem. So the word heart is used six times. I circled it here. It's used in 
uh, chapter, uh, sorry, verse two, uh, verse three, verse four, three more times. And then in verse nine, uh, one time. So in six times and just these short amount of verses, the word heart is used, um, verses two through four and in verse nine. And it's really, I think the key to the chapter and understanding what we need to know about Solomon and really what we need to know about ourselves. So the spiritual compromise ultimately for him is stemming from not just a, a lack of willpower to follow commands. It's not that it's that his heart was wrong. He had a, he had a heart problem here. And so when you hear the word heart here in the text, um, since we're Westerners, we like to separate it from our head. We got our heart in our head. Uh, so like in a TV or a movie, you may hear someone say, Hey, don't decide with your head. What you should do is decide with your heart. In other words, don't think just feel. Just feel and make the decision based on your feelings. And that's not how Hebrews, that's not how Israelites hear the word heart. For them, there is no separation of head and heart. For, for Israel, for Hebrews, that, and, and the reader of the Old Testament and New Testament, the head and heart go together. Uh, feeling and thinking both go together. And so he had a heart problem. It wasn't just that he had a feelings problem. It's that he had a feelings and a thinking problem. Um, he was the wisest man. But nevertheless, he had wrong thinking. So Solomon made a volitional decision with his head to turn away all of his feelings and affections away from God, from Yahweh to idols. So this was a holistic decision of his. He had a heart problem, meaning his thinking and his affections were all flawed. He made a massive, terrible decision to break the first commandment. Now, Let's make sure we understand what's going on here when we see Solomon's heart problem. So uh, his heart problem stemmed from ultimately what we know as, as our affections, our love. So in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 3, it tells us this. When we start the story of Solomon in chapter 3, verse 3, really start his, his, his monarchy. Chapter 3, verse 3, Solomon loved the Lord walking in the statutes of David, his father ultimately God. That's where he starts. Chapter three, verse three, Solomon loved the Lord. And where we are now is now King Solomon loved many foreign women from first Kings chapter three, verse three. He loves the Lord. And we get to first Kings 11. He doesn't love the Lord. He loves many foreign women. So starting with loving God, ending with loving foreign women. And this of course is sad because all sin then therefore is not just outwardly happening to you. All sin is an inward inside job and it's something that we're doing. All outward sin that we do is an overflow of our heart. Sin is a worship problem. We are worshiping ourselves or other things rather than the true God Yahweh. And so the problem is not out there passively coming to us. It's in here actively happening in us. We are choosing these things. And Solomon shows us that he had a heart problem, a broken heart. And so uh, the the same thing can be true with you then. If you are feeling inclinations towards spiritual compromises in your life, it could be from a heart problem. Could be from for me if I'm feeling that a heart problem. And so we need to think about our heart deeply. We need to make sure that our heart doesn't like to flirt with sin. Let me make sure I understand, you understand what I mean. So in a marriage, um, especially in mine for sure, <laughs> um, in a marriage, uh, when you're with someone, uh, if you choose to be with someone else, that is a big deal. Like your spouse is going to say, that's wrong. That's bad. Don't do that. 
But not just that. So the act of doing that is clearly wrong. But even in a marriage, flirting with someone else is wrong. You didn't necessarily do something with them, but you flirted with them, right? Well, you may have not technically committed adultery when you flirt, but the flirting shows your heart. And your spouse cares about your heart, not just your actions. So the flirting shows that your heart actually still wants to do it. And that's probably more painful for your spouse than the action because your heart doesn't want your spouse. Sin is the exact same way. Do you find yourself then, therefore, not maybe doing the sin, but maybe flirting with the sin? Thinking, I'm not going to commit it, but maybe I'm just going to see if the sin likes me. We're flirting with it. Um, if so, it's showing us something profoundly broken about our heart. The issue is our heart, that we don't, we don't even allow ourselves to flirt with sin. We should not ever let that happen. This is what was wrong with Solomon's heart. He flirted with it, but also did it. He loved sin more than God, as we see in 1 Kings chapter 3. He started out loving God. It's not that he never did. The text is clear. 1 Kings 3, 3, Solomon loved Yahweh. But when it gets to... First Kings 11, eight chapters. Solomon loved many foreign women. And so noticing spiritual compromises is being a keen observer of your own heart. And if you don't know how to do that, then what you need to do is get around people you love and trust and talk about your heart openly and honestly a lot. This is what my heart thinks right now. This is what's going on. I need to tell you what's going on. So that's the, that's the third way we can notice spiritual compromises. Another thing is this. So uh, the fourth one is some spiritual compromises are not just kind of the open and obvious kind of temporary sins, but some spiritual compromises are, they involve long, persistent sin. This is what's happening in Solomon's life. If you look at two through nine, it says, from the nations concerning which the Lord has said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them. Neither shall they with you, for surely it will turn your heart away after the God. So here he breaks the commandment of marrying uh, pagan women. And then it says Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives. So he breaks the commandment of having more than one wife uh, and committing adultery because he has 300 concubines. And his wife turned away, his wives turned away his hearts uh, for what. When Solomon was old, and here's, here's the key here. So when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart. So from a young age, he accumulated all these sins. And then he had this long, persistent sin until he was old to where he had married people. He had committed adultery. He had worshipped all these foreign gods. Because it says uh, Solomon, in verse 5, went after the Ashtoreth. He went after the Milkan, And he went after Chemosh. And he went after Molech. So he has this long period of just accumulated, persistent, willful decision of sins. And so this, some spiritual compromise is not, is not just a temporary kind of obvious thing, but it's this... Sometimes spiritual compromise is a long, persistent set of consistent sins. When Solomon was old, verse 4, when Solomon was old, we should stop, as Dale Davis says, we must take this moment to be frightened. He was 30 or so when he became a king, the wisest man in the world ever, the richest man in the world ever. 
He had actually been visited by God twice. That's what the Lord came, comes and says to him. Like, I visited you twice at the very end. I visited you twice. And so if we think, if I just had this massive revelation experience where the Lord literally revealed himself to me in a physical sense, then I would just follow after him. No, you wouldn't. No, I wouldn't. I mean, Solomon was visited physically by God twice. He says it in the end of verse 9. I appeared to you twice. The wisest man in the world didn't. Follow after God with all of his heart after God had visited him twice. We should take a moment here to be frightened. And that's two-pronged. It means first, it's not just the young of the church that need to make sure that they're being vigilant to watch themselves and watch their hearts. It's also the seasoned of the church that need to watch their hearts as well and realize uh, it's not just that There's the sins and folly of youth that can so easily entangle. But even as an adult, an an older adult, uh, I have to continually still watch my heart. I don't have to just think, oh, those young people need to watch it. And now I'm here because I'm, you know, in my 50s or 60s or 70s. But instead, when Solomon was old, his heart was still turned away. That's the first thing. But also the thing that we need to make sure is that if we are young and so easily entangled in sin that we don't actually have persistent sin into late in life where we have decades of willful sin. Decades of the same willful sin is just absolutely uh, devastating for us. For Solomon, he was old. It means that it means that the sin that entangled him in his younger life, the baby venomous snakes never died. And they did grow into huge serpents. And he willfully partook in decades of sin. It means that the same sins that he dealt with in his 20s and his 30s, he continued to not just deal with, but indulge in in his 40s and his 50s and his 60s and his 70s. This was persistent, willful sin. And this is just simply tragic. It's tragic. Why did he do this? Why? Well, verse four tells us we don't have to wonder when Solomon was old and his wives turned his heart away after God. When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after God, the other gods and his heart. Here it is. Here's the wife. It's not the, it's not the wives. It's this next part. His heart was not wholly true to the Lord, his God. That's why, because his heart was not wholly true to the Lord, his God. He didn't. Follow after, it says, as was the father of his heart, or as was the heart of his father, David. And so what's the difference between these two men? His heart wasn't wholly true like David's heart was wholly true. What's the key di- difference? Because there's some similarities. They were huge sinners. Huge sinners. The difference is that when David was confronted with his sin, he repented. See Psalm 51. He repented. Solomon did not Solomon did not like David. So David's heart was true after God because like David, like Solomon, all of us are huge sinners. I'm a huge sinner and so are you. So let's not take the example of Solomon and have an unrepentant ongoing lifestyle. Let's have the example of David where we have a continual repentant lifestyle where we don't have decades of indulging in the same sin and live a tragic life. But instead, we're like David where we follow his example and we repent as soon as we see the things going on in our life. I want you to notice something with me here in verses 2 and 3. It says in verse 3 that Solomon had 700 
wives. And this, of course, is dreadfully sinful to have this many wives, obviously. Um, Some of these wives were taken for political reasons. Uh, Let's take wives from these particular nations. And if we take the, the wives from these particular nations, then it makes things better for us around here. And you can look in verse one at the list of where they're from, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite. And so you have all these different Nations around him where he's taking wives for them to kind of keep the peace, right? Hey, I, I'm married to your daughter. And so let's, 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 uh, let's not fight with each other. And so um, here's the thing. The writer of First Kings chapter 11 is not interested in making us think that David took these foreign wives. Um, as we read this, he's not wanting us to think in political terms. He's not wanting us to think, oh, I get politically why he did this. Instead, the writer is not wanting us to actually think in political categories at all about these wives. Instead, he's wanting us to think about in, in the categories of affections, Solomon's affections. What's going on in Solomon's heart? Because look at what it says at the very end of verse 2 about his wives. It doesn't say, and he did this so that everybody would have peace. Look at the very end of verse 2. Uh, I'll read, you shall not marry these people for the, your turn away. And then it says this, after the quote of the commandment, Solomon clung to these in love. He clung to them in love. And when we see this word clung to them, it means that it's all about his heart and his affections. The story of Solomon, of him being in love with the Lord, ends with him being in love with foreign women. And the main thing is that his heart did not want to cling to Christ, to the Lord, or however you want to say it, it's in the Old Testament, and have him as the most precious reality in all of his life. And if he sinned, to repent of it, and then continually, but instead he let his heart cling to what's really ultimately sin. And so the story of Solomon is tragic, which should drive us all to ask this question. Where is my heart right now? And what does it love? What does my heart cling to? What does it cling to? Does it cling to God or does it cling to sin? I know that's a hard question. I would even say this. I know that's an even harder question to really right now in this moment to just be honest with yourself. An answer. Ah, of course it's God. Stop. Okay. Let's stop and and be honest with ourselves. What's the true answer of what it might be? Has a horrific turn or drift taken place in our hearts from what was actually our first love, Christ, to something else? We should answer this soberly and slowly and not just say, of course it's God. Because the human heart is massively tricky. It is deceitful. This is first commandment stuff. Deep, deep heart stuff here. Are there other lowercase gods that persistently rule our hearts that we find ourselves clinging to? Stop and really think about it. Here's why. If there are, and we're not watching, the consequences can be eternally tragic. We'll see that in the next one. They can be eternally tragic. And so we need to pray with David, Solomon's father. Psalm 19, 13 says this. God, keep back your servant, or you can say me. Keep me, keep us back from willful. This is like presumptuous. These are, these are intentional indulgences in sin. And he prays in Psalm nineteen thirteen, keep your servant back from willful 
presumptuous, obvious sins. May those sins not rule over me or have dominion over me. Then I will be blameless. I will be innocent of great sin and great transgression. We, have to, we, we should pray that all the time. Dear Lord, keep my heart away from willful sins. Because the consequences, as I said, could be eternally tragic. So as I said, that fourth thing that we see is some spiritual compromises will involve persistent sin. But even more crazy or even more tragic is this. Some spiritual compromises then therefore can also be a gateway to apostasy. They can just be the doorway to renouncing your faith completely. A gateway to apostasy. Verses 5 through 8 says this, For Solomon went after the Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, after Milcon, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil on the side of the Lord and did not follow after the Lord, as his, David, his father had done. Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and Molak, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain of the east of Jerusalem. And so he did with all of his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. Now you're reading that and you're like, I don't know who Ashtoreth and Milken and Chemish and Molech are. All right. So I'll just do a quick summary because it's real simple because these are, you know, long time ago, 3000 a year sins, but there are absolutely right now, 21st century equivalents. Um, Ashtoreth is basically the sex goddess. Milken is infanticide, infant burning, infant killing. Uh, Chemosh, Molech, these are just pagan gods to worship. It's just Worshipping and being an idolater. And so, let's be clear. Solomon lapsed into evil worship practices. He lapsed into evil worship practices. And any worship that's not given to Christ is evil. It's the same kind of evil as Solomon. That means there are contemporary examples right now that we can just easily, as we talked about sex goddess, infanticide, just pagan, obvious Worship. They're 21st century equivalents that we can do just with different names. We don't call them Ashtoreth and Milkan and Chemish and, and Molech. We have different names for them now. Probably just outright, we just call them what they are. Um, but the thing is that Solomon, because he didn't repent, willfully went into syncretism. This is the combination of a bunch of belief systems into kind of one junk drawer belief system. That's what syncretism is. This is what he practiced. And this is what uh, was going on in his heart. And that can be the gateway to apostasy. Uh, It can be. And so um, he should have stopped and repented. And this was possibly the gateway even for apostasy for him. So you can ask, was Solomon apostate? Did he go to hell then? Did he literally fall away from God? And while those are interesting questions to ponder, those are the wrong questions, I think. The better question is, since we're alive right now, is um, what might be the gateway of apostasy happening in my heart? If we're willingly, continually unwilling to repent right now, we stand the chance to be an apostate if we have ongoing, willful, just horrific pagan sin in our happen. You can ask, can that really happen? And I can say, yes, that can really happen. That really can. I believe once saved, always saved, but I also believe that we can have a facade pulled over our eyes to think we're saved and we never were. First John chapter two, verse 19. And if you do that, if you think you are, but then you fall away, then you never were. And that is apostasy. That is the falling away of what you thought you first initially believed. And you just need to pull up Google and write fallen Christians to see that there's fallen Christ- Christians right now that are making themselves apostate. It can really happen. And so... Uh, spiritual compromises can be the doorway 
for even someone in this room scary enough to apostasy, to walk away from God. This is, um, it's foolish for us to think that we don't have to persevere. Uh, it's very much possible, and we can be fooling ourselves to thinking that we are even Christians our entire life, but we really weren't. That's clearly what's going on in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23. Didn't we do this, God? They, they obviously think that they're Christians, and they never were. They just never were. And so we should let, instead of asking what happened to Solomon, we should let Solomon's life then serve for us as a caution for all of us to make sure that we are not compromising with sin, toiling around with sin, playing with sin, flirting with sin, that we never ever even come close to the gateway, the doorway of apostasy. But we're running the other direction, straight to heaven, straight to Christ, wanting to love Christ with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we don't walk up to the line and of compromise. So that's the... That's the ultimate thing that can happen. That's the eternal consequences that can happen. Lastly is this, is this. Some spiritual compromises will have eternal consequences. But here we'll see, and really verse 9 all the way through 43, the rest of the chapter, there's just three things we can see. But there are actually, they yield devastating results even today, right now. Of course, ultimately they yield Terrible eternal consequences, which clearly exceeds today's importance, but today is still important. So don't hear me saying that the eternal consequences outweigh everything and today's consequences don't matter. Today's consequences matter too, very much so. But they yield, compromising yield both um, consequences today and consequences forever. Eternal consequences are weighty beyond belief, but nevertheless... These spiritual compromises, these not fighting against the spiritual downfall also yielded um, compromises for Solomon right there in that moment. You can see them. Verse 9, the Lord was angry with Solomon. That's an immediate consequence that he had to deal with in that moment. Right then, if we're in sin right now, willfully and we don't care, one of our immediate consequences is God is angry with us. Now, we got to be careful. Um, and I don't mean that... Uh, the consequence is that if we're believers, we'll find ourselves in the discipline of the Lord. Not Romans 8, 1, there's therefore now no condemnation. You're not condemned, but you are under the discipline, Hebrews 12, of the Lord. You can find Hebrews 12, read it up tonight. Um, the second thing that consequence for him is in verse 11. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice, you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I command you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you. And give it to your servant. Immediate consequence, you don't get to have the kingdom anymore. It's going to split. That's an immediate consequence. Not just eternal for him, but immediate he has to deal with. Another one you can see in 14 and 23. The Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon. 23, God raised up another adversary against Solomon. And ultimately we see another one uh, in 26 with Jeroboam, who is another adversary. So immediate consequence number three, God raised up adversaries. And, and the writers just don't have any problem with this to say God was responsible for raising up an adversary against Solomon. Boom, God did it. Of course God did it. It didn't just passively happen to Solomon. God had no control. The, the writers of the, of the Old Testament, New Testament, have no problem assigning sovereignty to the Lord and bringing about negative circumstances in the lives of his people. And they don't blush by this at all. Nor should we. The Lord told him in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, which we've already read, if you do this, then you will incur my judgment. And so the judgment of God, the justice of God, the wrath of God is always coupled with the mercy and grace of God. But we shouldn't be as Christians trying to like 
throw out grace and mercy and hide justice and wrath behind our back. Like that's not God. Like he's both. We should be scared of it. But nevertheless, because in our own lives, we should be aware that this is the truth as well. If we aren't continually repenting, trusting in the grace and mercy of God, we will be recipients of the judgment and the wrath of God. And so there's eternal consequences, but there's also devastating immediate results. Now, these are his results. They're, 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 they're difficult, but we can feel them in our own lives. Just this week, I had two people call me up and of my two friends telling me that they're getting divorces because of the sin in their lives. Their lives, not their spouse's wives, their lives. Their immediate consequences of willful sin. And so we must realize that they are going to happen to us if we choose to continually compromise, if we continually don't fight against downfall. So what might be some of those things in your life? Now, we've got to be careful here. We don't say, well, I don't want bad things to happen. So what do I do? What do I do? Jesus. Okay. Jesus is the answer. I don't want bad things. So we don't run away from sin just because we don't like consequences, right? Um, Nobody's in heaven because they just don't like consequences. People are in heaven because they love Christ. So we turn to Christ because he is our first love and our only love and our forever love. Like we cannot get over the fact that he saved us. So what's the proper gospel response? I want to, I want to show you something here at the end of chapter 11, where God's talking about what's going to happen. He says this in verse 39, and I will afflict the offspring of David. So he's talking about all the consequences that are going to happen, but watch this because of this, here it is three words, but not forever. But not forever. I think you can just feel the gospel hope in that. But not forever. The remnant that God is going to leave for his people Israel and ultimately for us, the son of God Christ, is an overflow. And I wouldn't just say a small, a massive overflow of grace and mercy towards them. There is judgment. But not forever. Israel's king Solomon did not finish well. He did not finish well. But we have a King Jesus that did finish well when he was on the cross and literally said, it is finished. He showed us what it's like to persevere to the end and finish well. King Jesus finished well by being the truer and better version of Solomon. He didn't give in to sin. His heart was not drawn to sin, but instead he loved the Lord his God perfectly. He obeyed God perfectly. He lived the perfect life that's required for us, for us. You and I cannot do this. Never will we be able to. And so that's why we repent and we thank the Lord Jesus that we have a savior. Thank you, Lord, for being my savior. You're my only hope to ever have a right standing with God. He's the perfect mediator. He's the ultimate protector. He's the great provider. He's the perfectly righteous one. He's the ultimate and wise king. He's the only one that can really, because he's the only true king, to offer us infinite riches. Solomon was rich, but it pales in comparison to the riches of Jesus. Jesus is infinitely rich and he offers us not gold and silver but riches into the wealth of the knowledge of the love of christ he didn't turn away from god's law like solomon but he kept god's law perfectly and he died for idolaters like me and like solomon and like you he died for idolaters 
Solomon went to a grave, verse 43. Solomon slept with his, followers, uh, with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. Solomon went to his grave and he was buried and likely somewhere his bones are still in the ground. Jesus was not buried forever. Instead, he was buried like Solomon, but his grave is empty today because he beat Satan, sin, and death and was resurrected three days later, ultimately offering to all of us a resurrection of the, of the life that we can um, be given through him. Jesus is our only hope. He's the Savior King who's not, unlike Solomon, whose kingdom was temporary, his kingdom is forever. And so we bow down to the King. We worship the King. I want to read, this is, um, I think the best way to conclude. And so if your heart has been overburdened with the 40 minutes of law that I talked about in the very end and the three minutes of gospel, I finally gave us at the very end. I know that's a, it's a difficult weight of the way it works, but nevertheless, that was the text. And I, I'm not a fan of 40 minutes of law and three minutes of gospel. I'm a fan of, of all gospel, really. And here's a little bit of law. You know that you're a sinner. All right, let's get to the good news. But the text wasn't like that today. But nevertheless, um, here's what I think our right response is. I'm just going to read a song. I really love it. It's by David Crowder. And this is what he's in, God is ultimately inviting us all into. It says this. If we have been, after hearing all of these things about sin, knowing that we're entrenched in sin, knowing we have a heart that doesn't cling to the Lord but clings to our sin, this is what he says. Come. Come out of sadness from wherever you are. Come brokenhearted. Let rescue begin. Come find mercy, O sinner. Kneel. Earth has no sorrow that Jesus can't heal. Earth has no sorrow that it says heaven, but Jesus can't heal. So lay down your burdens. Lay down your shame. All who are broken. Everyone. If you're broken, if your heart's been broken, lift up your face. Wanderer, come home. You're not too far. Lay down your hurt. Lay down your heart and come as you are. There's hope for you who are hopeless and all of you who have strayed. Come now, sit at the table, come and taste the grace. There's rest for the weary that earth has. There's rest for the weary and rest that endures. Earth has no sorrow that Jesus can't cure. So lay down your burdens, lay down your shame. Everyone who's broken, come lift up your face. Wanderer, come home. You're not far. Lay down your heart, lay down your hearts. Come as you are right now to Christ. Repent like David did of all of your sin and say, Christ, you're my only hope. I want to renounce all of those ongoing practices of sin. And I don't want my heart to cling to sin. Instead, I want it to cling to God. Come to him this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for... Uh, I thank you for difficult texts. They're not fun, but they're important because they're in your word. And so I pray for us all as we think on this text the weight of it, the soberness of it, the seriousness of it, that we really would examine our own hearts. That we really would think on what's going on in our hearts. And if we have any ongoing sin, that we would confess and repent. I pray for every one of my brothers and sisters here this morning that they would never apostate themselves. They would never fall away. I've known people that have chosen that, and it's just... And I know them now, and it's just devastating to know that they have just walked away. I pray that you would change their hearts. So this morning, Lord, would you please do an amazing work in our hearts as you beckon us to come and return to you. I pray, God, that we would think about Christ, the gospel, the good news of Jesus.
and we would cling to him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.